landing on a comet. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Rosetta visited Mars just two weeks ago. It's one of many whistle stops on a 10-year, 4.5 billion mile journey to a comet. This week we'll meet the mission's project scientist. Gerhard Schwem will tell us about that very successful swing past the red planet and where Rosetta goes from here. Emily Lakdawalla has found the heartbeat of Saturn. She'll play it back for us during her Q&A segment. And she'll tell us what that rhythm is telling scientists about the ringed planet. Bruce Betts has a tale to tell about the night sky, culminating in another chance to win the coveted and highly fashionable spring edition of the Planetary Radio T-Shirt. It's a busy show, and we only have time for a few space headlines, beginning with bad news for anyone who'd like to find near-Earth objects before they find us. The U.S. Congress asked NASA to come up with a plan to find the 20,000 or so biggest killer asteroids, but they haven't come up with the money to pay for the search. On the other hand, the Planetary Society has just named the latest winners of Shoemaker Neo Grants. The seven researchers in five countries will use the funds to aid their searches for the rock with our address stamped on it. Both stories are at planetary.org, where you'll also find Emily's blog. She writes about one place on Earth that still considers Pluto a planet. The New Mexico State Legislature has issued that declaration, at least when Pluto is in the sky over the southwestern state. And here's Emily with that Q&A. Gerhard Schwem is just a minute away. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked... What does the length of a day mean for a rotating ball of gas like Jupiter? New Horizons and several previous missions have returned animations of Jupiter's clouds, showing that each dark belt and light zone seems to be moving around the planet at a different rate, with the anticyclonic storms rolling in between them. It's obvious even through a backyard telescope that the whole planet rotates under these clouds, But how do you pick the length of one day when there are no surface features to set Jupiter's equivalent of the Greenwich Meridian? What you need is some signal from Jupiter's rotating interior that is not subject to the same variability as its upper-level clouds. Fortunately, Jupiter and the other gas giants do send signals from their interiors that scientists can tune into. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more. Gerhard Schwem has already been working on Rosetta for more than two decades, and it will be another seven years before his spacecraft begins orbiting 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Good thing he has lots to keep him busy, including two asteroid flybys and two more visits to the mysterious planet known as Earth. The mission's project scientist is also head of the Solar System Science Operations Division for STEC, the European Space Research and Technology Center at the European Space Agency. In fact, he was ESA's first planetary scientist. Thanks so much for taking some time out on a Saturday to uh, bring us up to date on the Rosetta mission. Let's begin with this uh, very successful flyby of Mars that uh, your spacecraft just experienced. Uh, I take it that everything went extremely well. Yeah, that's correct. Everything went extremely well. And it was for us, it was really a first major step on the long uh, route to the comet after the launch. 
because we had to use the Mars Gravity Assist to really retarget the spacecraft very precisely to Earth for our next Gravity Assist with a much bigger body, which is really important that we then gain the orbital energy to make our way to Comet of Karasimenko. It's very interesting, and I think this may come up again in our conversation, that there are parallels between your mission, Rosetta, and the New Horizons mission. We were covering its flyby of Jupiter just last week, and I, I read, in fact, that uh, some of Rosetta's operations were coordinated with the New Horizons flyby. Yeah, this is correct. We have the good uh, chance that we can uh, do measurements together with New Horizon. New Horizon passed uh, Jupiter on the 28th, we have one instrument on board from our orbiter payload, which is ELIS, a UV spectrometer. The PI is Alan Stern, and uh, Alan Stern, as your yes. listeners who have <laughs> listened to you know, is also the PI of the New Horizon mission. And it was a good opportunity to uh, then coordinate observations of Jupiter from both spacecraft from different viewing angles, so to say. And as I said, I think some of these other parallels may come out later in our conversation. But let's come back to Mars. You had one image in particular uh, very near your uh, closest point to Mars. A lot of us here, and, and particularly I think my colleague Emily Lakdawalla, were particularly uh, enamored of. And that was this shot from one of your instruments that actually caught a bit of one of your solar panels. Yeah, this was an amazing image, and I was really glad that we uh, got this uh, excellent shot. And it also gives you a great feel, you know, from a flyby, because you see, you, you get a perspective. You see part of the spacecraft, you see Mars below. It's like you sit in, a, in an aircraft and look down on Earth. At closest approach, we had to uh, switch off most of the orbiter uh, subsystems and also the payload because we went through an eclipse. And Rosetta is not designed to go through these uh, eclipses now en route to the comet, but the lander who will be deployed onto the comet nucleus has to live on his own power there. Yes. So what we did, we charged the lander batteries, and then the lander was, so to say, taken as a standalone instrument and could run on its own power. So the lander camera, this receiver uh, camera, uh, was able to take this close-up picture at uh, basically from uh, 250, 300 kilometers height above the surface. This lander has uh, really ha a historic role to play once you uh, reach the comet, which is Rosetta's ultimate goal, because it will be the first spacecraft to set foot on the, the core of a comet, the inner ice ball or dirty snowball, uh, the, as we've come to know uh, comets to be. Yes, that's, uh, it's really the, one of the highlights of the mission today, and it will happen very early in the comet science phase that we have, that we put and deploy the lander, and it should uh, soft land onto the nucleus, anchor onto the uh, nucleus, and then take uh, in situ measurements. This will be one of the very important uh, parts of the mission, and uh, we're also glad that, again, uh, two instruments really demonstrated how good uh, they work, so the SIVA camera, and we also got some very good measurements from the instrument that's called ROMAP, which is the uh, plasma instrument and a uh, magnetometer. So although there we got very good data. We have not yet got the data analyzed. We should get the results in a couple of uh, days, I hope. They, they are working on it. But then you can also intercalibrate the two instruments and you can also compare it to uh, previous measurements around Mars. However, there you have to say there are not so many plasma instruments that are flying around Mars. We were a little bit alone in that area, but uh. we got uh, excellent data and we can also see 
We have Mars Express there, another ESA mission that is uh, orbiting Mars, where we have a plasma instrument, and uh, this will help us to calibrate uh, our instruments, as you say. And uh, it was a great opportunity, and we got... uh, I believe also good science out of it. Yeah, and in fact, that's the next point I was going to make. This was more than a flyby and a chance to test your instruments. You really did conduct science at Mars. Yeah, this is correct. This was for us was secondary. I have really have to admit, but uh, we took the opportunity, and it turned out that we, I think, did a good, a pretty good job to to really introduce a very nice uh, timeline for these instruments. And uh, as you saw from this slender instrument, a great shot, which is just by its beauty, so to say. You don't have to make science out of it. It's, it's just a wonderful sight of Mars with a spacecraft, basically, <laughs> on the image. Uh, but also the Osiris uh, camera, this is our imaging system on the, on the orbiter, really took a, a few brilliant shots of Mars and also could, in the different wavelength areas that that camera has, which are basically unique for an imaging system because it's designed for a comet. But there you could also look for, you know, certain molecular lines. You could, we we have this wonderful image where you see the the clouds up above uh, the Mars surface. So there's, uh, the data are there, and uh, as usual, uh, my colleagues have to work on these data. We will put links to uh, your website and some of these images, of course, on our website, right where uh, some people are probably listening to this program. But if you're not, they'll be at planetary.org. We encourage people to take a look. There really are some spectacular photos. Rosetta is on, like New Horizons, uh, an extraordinarily long trip. I like to think of it as, as two round trips to Saturn, except that you have some additional flybys ahead of you. Yes, this is correct. We will now go to the Earth, as I said, for gravity assist. Uh, That will bring us, so to say, a little bit farther away from the sun, so we will have our first asteroid close flyby in 2008, come back to the Earth for another gravity assist, then go to asteroid or flyby asteroid Lutetia, a couple of thousand uh, kilometers distance. Hmm. And then we come into another very critical phase for us where we hibernate the spacecraft because we are far away from the sun and we have not enough power to run the, full, the spacecraft full, fully fledged. So uh, we will put it in hibernation for about two years. And when we come out of this hibernation, then the really exciting cometary science will start. So beginning of 2000. Uh, 14, when we wake up the spacecraft again and uh, prepare ourselves for rendezvous with the comet Churium of Gerasimenko. We should see, so to say, the comet in, uh, in spring, and then uh, we have what we call uh, observation phase, a mapping phase, because we have to characterize the, the, the comet nucleus and to prepare for the lander deployment. And this lander deployment we want to do at the end, late autumn uh, in 2014. So this ah. 2014 will be a ex- really exciting time because we will, so to say, get close to the nucleus, prepare everything to go into orbit and learn as much about, so to say, the dynamics of the nucleus that we can prepare. And this will be a very intensive phase. We have uh, three and a half months for characterizing the nucleus because we also have to find a nice spot where we want to land, mm-hmm. an interesting spot to program everything correctly that we can deploy the lander. I can tell you this will be very, very exciting. We are looking forward to it. We still have to be patient. We still have to do a lot of work to prepare. I'll be right back with more from Gerhard Schwem of the Rosetta Comet mission. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. 
Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're talking with Gerhard Schwem, project scientist with the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission, the first ever to orbit and even land on a comet. But do you really land on something that's only four kilometers in diameter? Now, with an object this small, is it actually a landing or is it more like a rendezvous? No, it's actually, yeah, it's a touchdown, it's a landing, but, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, he once said, and it's, that comes close, that this is a mission to kiss a comet. You go very, <laughs> very smoothly, you know, very gently down there, and, 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 and you basically fall onto the surface. We are in orbit around the nucleus, and then we deploy the lander that we give him, so to say, in a, a small velocity against the orbital velocity we have for the nucleus. That means it will then gently uh, fall down. And uh, this has to be really timed and, and designed very, very carefully and accurately. And I give you now rough numbers because this is what we have in the planning and the requirements from, from about uh, two kilometers above the surface. And, and, and then I, it goes down with about 30 centimeters uh, per second. So it's very gentle. Yes. But on the other hand, you'll be orbiting something, well, at times as close as two kilometers from the, from the comet's uh, head. Will Rosetta be passing through the tail of the comet? And, and are there any concerns about damage uh, from material coming off of the comet? We are sitting so close with the spacecraft uh-huh. that we are in the coma. You know, wow. the, the tail is far. This is one of the things some of the guys want to go. But we are we are at two kilometers distance from from the surface. Basically, if if you look at from from perspective from Earth, we are close to the nucleus. The tail is is farther away. You know, the coma extends several ten thousand kilometers. It depends how active the comet is. Mm-hmm. But when we arrive at the comet, and this is the phase why we want to le- uh, deploy the lander also very early, we arrive at the comet at a very inactive time, so to say. We are still far away from the sun. The other thing is where always people are, so to say, concerned about, and that one has to say as well, this is a rendezvous mission. You know, even Mm. uh, Stardust, when it collected the samples, it was basically, relative velocity was six kilometers per second. Yes, yeah, huge. Yeah, so this is six, what we do is is meters per second, relative Uh velocity with the dust, yeah? So up to... uh, 200 meters per second, depends what orbits we chose and as we get there. So you have to see these are totally different domains. So you, the, the threat is, is much less than stardust. Had much, to prepare yeah, for. no, the threat is, is really low. What we have to look at after, uh, uh, or have to be careful with, is later when, you know, we stay with the comet when it goes through the, its uh, perihelion. Yes. So we have to be very careful to really monitor how the production of, uh, you know, how the comet releases dust and gas, and that will uh, increase when we get closer to the sun. And, and, and the, more da- the danger you have is that you collect 
dust on the on surfaces. From the studies we have, we we are fairly fairly confident, and uh, I can tell you just as an example, we have uh, instruments on board that have to collect dust. This is uh, mm. you know the Cosima instrument, which is a dust mass spectrometer uh, that has to collect dust on the target, and also MIDAS, which is an atomic force microscope, they have to collect. And we have in our preliminary planning, we have to put in so to say, two or three weeks where we give these instruments really the opportunity to collect. It takes a lot of time to collect enough dust. I should think that as Rosetta approaches the sun and becomes more active, that this will become uh, a much more exciting time for, uh, for Rosetta and for your scientists to be watching this for the first time from this kind of distance. Yeah, sure. This is one of the prime objectives as well. When we go with Churyum of uh, Gerasimenko, when we get in a, when we get to the sun, we want to see how the produ production rates of the comet increase. We want to understand how this sublimation of uh, the frozen gases works. And I can tell you, uh, this will be really an exciting time. And we will, I believe we will basically, in real time, we will learn a lot of new things. What else do you hope that Rosetta will help us to learn about comets, and in particular, the nucleus of a comet? I think one of the prime objectives we have, and I think there we will learn a lot because we have a very good payload for this, is uh, the composition of the comet, and especially the composition of the volatiles, the frozen gases that are then released. The second problem we hopefully uh, get a handle on is the density of the comet. We always we believe that everything there is very fluffy, but we want to see how the gases uh, or the, the ice and the dust, how that is there together, in, in, in what structure you will find it. So all these questions come, uh, you know, come to mind. They have to be answered. The third one is really what we just addressed is, you know, how does this, sublimation really work? How is a comet working when it's heated up? And we have from, from the orbiter, we, we really have high resolution imaging. We get, will get down to a few centimeters. So I hope that we get a prime so the view of sublimation going on. Dr. Schwem, you've already been on this mission for over 20 years. I, I've read that you became lead scientist for Rosetta in 1985. No, I was a study scientist at that time, but, uh, yeah, I was leading the science team. It was in the really early, early stages, yeah. But with the mission for 22 years, and you've got seven more to go. Uh, yeah, that's a, a long time to spend on a mission. Uh, this is correct, but I also have to <laughs> say that I'm slowly phasing out. You know, one thing is that I, since a couple of years, already doing much more management work than I did before. But secondly, this is perhaps for your, uh, those listening to you in the U.S., uh, we have still these rules that we have at a certain time. We have to go into pension. We have to retire from our job and uh, perhaps have more time again to, to go back to science and, and really do something with the uh, data that we will uh, uh, get from Churyum of Karasimenko. Well, I certainly hope that that's exactly how your life proceeds and, and that you continue to see uh, the kind of success that uh, we, we are seeing from Rosetta, and particularly as it uh, nears that uh, comet nucleus in 2014, and will be very active there, hopefully until well into 2015, during, interestingly enough, the same period that New Horizons flies past Pluto. We are, I think the, the whole community is really looking forward to these two exciting years. 
Well, I'd like to think that we could check back with you again, perhaps uh, for the first of those asteroid flybys that you mentioned earlier in our conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. I think it's uh, always a good opportunity for us also to, to get a little bit of the excitement across and, and to, to demonstrate and, and explain what we are doing. Thank you so much. I think you've done that very well, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr. Gerhard Schwem is uh, with ESTEC, ESA ESTEC, ESTEC being the European Space Research and Technology Center. ESA, of course, the European Space Agency, from which we uh, have stories uh, quite frequently nowadays. He is, in addition to being the project scientist for Rosetta, he is the head of the Solar System Science Operations Division. We'll be speaking with Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up right after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. How do we figure out the length of a day on a gas giant when there's no solid surface that we can watch rotate? The answer is that scientists don't watch, they listen. The giant planets all broadcast on radio frequencies. These radio emissions come from charged particles interacting with the magnetic field. The magnetic field is generated deep in the interior of a planet, so as the whole planet rotates, so does the magnetic field, and consequently so do its radio emissions. Here's the sound of Saturn rotating, sped up so that one second equals one Saturn day. According to measurements by Cassini, one Saturn day is about 10 hours and 46 minutes long, but therein lies a puzzle. Voyager performed exactly the same measurement and got a rotation rate more than six minutes shorter than the Cassini rotation rate. This cannot actually mean that Saturn has slowed down that much in 20 years. There is no physical way for Saturn to have given up so much angular momentum so quickly. So it seems that although the radio rotation rate gives some clues, there are still a lot of puzzles concerning what's going on deep inside the giant planets. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He is ready once again to tell us about the wonders of the night sky. Go out, look around, find the stuff he talks about right now. It's wonderful. Yes. And first, the wonder of the daytime sky. Partial solar eclipse, March 19th, from Eastern Asia, Northern Alaska. Road trip. It's never too late. <laughs> well, unless you're listening to this the day after. I'm up it for really it. Is. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's let's blow this joint. Really? Yeah. You and me? Yeah. Road trip? Who else? Northern Alaska? I'm ready. I'm going to go. As long as I get some northern lights in. Well, it's a good time for them. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay, we'll see. All right, it's getting really boring for the listeners, so let's tell you what else is up. We've got in the evening sky, Venus just always dominating there in the west, shortly after sunset in the early evening, the really, really bright-looking star-like object, that's Venus. We've also got Saturn high in the sky in the early evening, looking kind of yellowish, sort of near Regulus, a bright star. And in the pre-dawn sky, we've got Jupiter high over, high up in the sky, looking like the brightest star-like object up there at that time, and Mars lower 
in the southeast during dawn. And if you really try, you might pick up Mercury, which is uh, briefly going to be above the east-southeast horizon, well to the lower left of Mars. Busy sky. Yeah. I'm exhausted. On to this week in space history, 1781. William Herschel discovered Uranus during this time period. Which is a nice consolation, uh, you know, England losing America and all that. It's, they found a planet. <laughs> we'll colonize that place. <laughs> well, there's the whole naming thing that they were going to name it after King George. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, but eventually it changed to the much more popular and much more maligned <laughs> Uranus. Really, there would have gone a lot of junior high humor between then and now. Yeah, if they called it like, you know, Georgian, that, that would have been different. Yeah. 1926, Robert Goddard launched the first liquid-fueled rocket. One of my heroes. The rocket or? No, Robert. Oh, okay, yeah. No, he's he's worthy of herodom. Heroism. Herodom? Yeah. Herodom, I like He's heroicious. <laughs> On to Random Space Hey, did you know that Voyager 2 was launched before Voyager 1? Kind of crazy, huh? It was, no, not a lot different, but about two weeks before Voyager 1 in 1977. But Voyager 1 was on a faster trajectory, and so got to Jupiter first and Saturn first, hence the one designation. And they knew that was going to happen, so. <laughs> yeah, it was just a surprise. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> we better change the numbers. <laughs> yes. They, well, they have trouble with numbers sometimes, you know, putting things in backwards and so on, so they yeah. might have put the wrong spacecraft <clears throat> on the rocket. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they did. Moving right along to the trivia contest, we asked you, what is the diameter of the New Horizons radio antenna? How'd we do? This one is so cool. Because what happened was, now before we get to the winner, we have to mention Craig Journay, who noticed that there were different numbers on different websites, even on different NASA websites. Hmm. And he found that the general answer was one thing, but one particular website at the National Space Science Data Center at Goddard said that it was 2.5 meters. And he wrote to them and pointed this out, and they said, oops. Thank you for letting us know. We've had it wrong. <laughs> Witness the power of planetary radio listeners. Truly. Isn't power. that cool? That's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> you want to know who really won, though? I, I do. Who, who was the randomly selected one who said 2.1 meters? That's what she said, Colleen Keneally. And she said it in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Colleen, congratulations. We're going to send you out a planetary radio T-shirt. And it is amazing, isn't it? 2.1 meters, and we're going to be talking to it from Pluto. Yeah, that's really far away. Yeah. Did you know? I did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And further, I mean, it's going to keep it up, right? Yes, that's certainly the goal, and they have every intent to uh, encounter a Kuiper Belt object. Never ceases to amaze me. It is pretty amazing stuff. Let's ask you another trivia question for uh, give more of you an opportunity to win your Planetary Radio T-shirt. Scientists from what country have provided magnets for nearly all the recent and future Mars missions, including the Mars Exploration Rovers and the Phoenix mission. Hmm. Who provided the magnets that sit there and collect the Martian dust? What country are the scientists from? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to send us your answer. And you've got until Monday, the 19th of March at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. Are we done? We are. Okay, everybody go out there, look on the night sky, and think about flying corks. 
Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Flying corks? Flying corks. Okay, I'm going to ignore that and throw <laughs> out a rhetorical question. Why are we able to pick up excellent data from beyond Pluto from this tiny transmitter on a 2.1-meter uh, dish, and my cable reception sucks? You said it was rhetorical. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. No, if you paid as much for your cable reception as they paid <laughs> for their mission, you probably would have excellent cable. Couldn't the Couldn't the Deep Space Network go into television distribution? I, I mean, that they might pick up a few uh, extra bucks. Yeah, as long as they can keep track of which spacecraft number they put in which rocket. Bruce Betts is the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he has to put up with an awful lot sometimes when he joins us here for What's Up. (laughs) Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week, everyone.